the Dynamic Deputies. Hello and welcome to the Dynamic Deputies podcast, run by two deputy heads living on opposite sides of the country. A warm welcome to all of our listeners and to my co-host Steve. Thanks Russell and hello everybody. In today's episode, we're going to be thinking about proxies for learning. By this, we mean those indicators that learning might or might not be happening in our classrooms. That's right, Steve. And to help us navigate the research around this topic, we're joined by Professor Rob Coe. Previously a secondary maths teacher, Rob then embarked on an academic career. He was Professor of Education and Director of the Centre for Evaluation and Monitoring at Durham University from 2010 to 2018. He is now Director of Research and Development at Evidence-Based Education and Senior Associate for the Education Endowment Foundation. Rob, welcome to our podcast. Thank you very much. Great pleasure to be here. No, thank you for joining us, Rob. Rob, could you start by giving us a brief background about your career and where this interest in academic research comes from, please? Yeah, well, I can honestly say when I was teaching, I, I wasn't really very interested in academic research. I wasn't interested in evidence, I wouldn't say, and I don't think my practice was informed by evidence. Uh, so that kind of came afterwards. I was a bit interested in research, and I think that's why I left teaching to go and do a PhD in the first place. It, it felt like a curiosity, really, just something, a bit, a bit of fun, a, a diversion. <laughs> And uh, sure enough, it was, except that I didn't, never really came back. So that was the, never, never went back into school. That experience of what it's like to work in a school and, and the, what it's like to be in a classroom with kids and so on uh, has always been there. I think in my research, I've always been interested in, in research that's relevant and, and rigorous. Yeah, definitely keen on that too. So that, I guess that's kind of steered me through different, different interests over, over time. Fantastic. So today we're going to be talking about proxies for learning, as Steve said. But before we do this, I think it's helpful to pin down a definition of what we mean by learning. So listeners will know that in the Ofsted handbook, uh, learning's defined as an alteration in long-term memory. And I was just curious whether you're comfortable with that definition of learning, Rob. Yeah, I don't. I, do you know, this is something I, I can't get really excited about. <laughs> it's like it's like a game, really. Can you Can you come up with a a nice formulation that's not too long and it's sort of covers every eventuality and all the different kinds of learning. And the answer is you can't mm. because learning is just quite complicated actually. And I think whatever definition you come up with, you can find exceptions and things that you think, well, is that learning or, or, you know, that doesn't quite fit or whatever. And um, how is it helpful anyway? Mm. You know, I'm not really sure. I, I think there are, certain things that we want children to learn uh, or to be able to do or to know about or to understand you know these are all words that can be a bit slippery people can get really hung up about well is that skill or is it a knowledge you know what do you what do we mean by knowledge anyway is it the same is it different so i think that the useful bit of that is to bring it down to well how would we know in other words how do we operationalize what what is it if I if I want children to understand, um, I don't know, ratio, let's say, we can talk about what that means. What I actually need to do is to say, here's the kind of problem that if they can solve this, then I'm happy that they understand. Not necessarily this one, but problems like this. So as soon as I've turned it into a, an actual concrete task, if you like, then I think we know what we're talking about at that point. 
And that's really where we then have to think about the curriculum. Well, we want, this is the end point. We want children to be able to solve these kinds of problems. So what kinds of experiences and activities and so on do we need to put in front of them and, and get them to do in order to stand the best chance possible of getting to that point that defines your curriculum? And at no point in that process did you have to really have a a nice snappy definition of learning I don't think no but I suppose something's gone on with long-term memory there for them to get to that point where they can solve those problems uh, I would maybe suggest yeah so we know I think I think now you're drawing on the uh, what we know about the science of learning if you like cognitive um, psychology yeah. and how actually how dependent that is on memory mm. And that was one of the things, again, when I was teaching, I mean, I, I stopped teaching in, um, I don't know, 96 or something, so a long, long time ago. But I don't think anybody then really thought it was important for students to, to remember stuff. Mm. I just don't remember ever, anyone ever thinking that. And, and even quite recently, that wasn't a, a fashionable, popular view. And now it seems to have become pretty fashionable, or in certain quarters anyway. Yeah. How widespread that is among sort of regular teachers in regular schools, I'm not sure. Mm. But I think it's right. You know, you can't you can't just Google it always. Um, certain things you can, but in order to do that, you also need to know quite a lot of stuff, how mm. to do that well. And to make sense of new learning, you have to connect it with previous learning. And that means it needs to be there in your memory, in your, in your head. And that, you know, so I think we know quite a bit about that. Actually, none of that's new knowledge. I mean, when I was teaching, psychologists knew all about this. It hasn't changed massively since then. Teachers didn't know so much about it, mm. I guess. Maybe psychology teachers did, but the rest of us didn't. So we, um, you know, we blithely carried on as if we didn't care or know how how memory works and I think that's less common now I mean it's really hard to judge because you can you know talk with people like you guys and uh, you know twitter conversations and things like that and it seems like well everybody knows about um, cognitive load and working memory and long-term memory and well not, actually not everyone does know about that I, I know that's true but how many people do and how many people really understand it well I think is hard to know. Thank you and with that description of learning in mind then let's discuss these proxies for learning. Rob you were a central author of what makes great teaching report in 2014. In 2015 you gave a talk about this and one of the slides that was widely shared online was about poor proxies for learning. Could you talk us through the points you made here and the research that underpinned these ideas, please? Yeah, so actually, so this goes back, I think, uh, sorry, I have to backtrack a little bit here, actually to the original Teaching Learning Toolkit, what's now the EEF Toolkit, I think is probably what most people call it. Yeah. But to begin with, it was the Sutton Trust Teaching and Learning Toolkit, I think that was the name, and then it became Sutton Trust stroke EEF teaching learning toolkit anyway the, the very first version of that uh, started out with a conversation between Steve Higgins who was the, the lead author and the main champion of the whole toolkit ever since who was my colleague in Durham myself and, and Lee Elliott Major who was at that time the director of research at Sutton Trust and we basically sat in a pub one evening and had this conversation about how there's quite a lot of knowledge from research about things that are effective and things that are not classroom practices, pedagogy, if you like, things that are effective that make a difference or interventions as well that, that make a difference to learning and things that don't. And 
most teachers don't really know about them. And, and what prompted this was a survey that the Sutton Trust had done just before the 2010 general election, where, uh, I don't know if you remember, but all three parties had some version of pupil premium in their manifesto. Mm. Uh, I mean, quite, there were slightly different versions and, and not all of them had all that much money attached to them. But the, the prospect was that schools might be given quite a significant chunk of extra money and uh, a fair amount of discretion about how to spend it. And Sutton Trust did this survey and said, well, if you had this, this you know, cash sloshing around, what would you spend it on? And mostly what people said were things like, oh, well, we'd hire another teacher and reduce class sizes, or we'd um, hire some more teaching assistants, or we'd, and there were a whole other, lot of other things like that. Most of which were, I think we thought, not the most likely things to have the biggest impact according to the research evidence. So class size, we know that um, reducing class size does have an impact on the amount of learning in a class, but not that much, actually. And it's a very, very expensive thing to do. So to choose to do that is to not do a whole lot of other things, many of which could be much more effective. So it's not no one's saying that we, you know, I'd love to see lots of really big classes. But if you've got extra money and you're choosing to spend it on reducing the class size, reducing the ratio, think hard about whether that's really the best way that you could spend that money, I think, because a lot of it takes a lot of money to not make very much difference to class size. And that money could make a lot more difference doing other things, I think. Anyway, that's that was the kind of research we knew about. So we thought, well, why don't teachers? Um, you know, why are they apparently making these uh, what we thought were suboptimal choices? And I suppose we thought, well, a big part of that is they don't know. They don't know about this research. It's not out there. So that was why we did the, the toolkit in the first place. And then I um, spent a lot of time talking about if I was ever invited to do a talk, I, it would be about that, basically. And I would get to the point where I'd say things like, you know, class size doesn't really make a lot of difference to how much children learn. Uh, teaching assistants, pretty much no impact, actually. Adding an extra adult into a classroom doesn't seem to make much difference to how much learning happens and other things like that. Uh, ability grouping was another one that doesn't seem to really make much difference. And to begin with, definitely in the early days of this, so we're talking 2011, 2012, that kind of period, teachers in, in my audience, I suppose mostly school leaders, but you know, classroom teachers broadly, would just be horrified and outraged and, and want to argue because this was so against everything they knew or thought they knew. And so I, I suppose I knew that I was kind of picking a fight in a way, picking an argument with people. I was, I was being provocative. And and any talk that I'd planned at that point more or less disintegrated into this, um, this discussion then, let's call it a discussion, uh, about, well, you know, we're pretty sure the way we use teaching assistance is effective, uh, that kind of thing. Or, or how can you say that uh, reducing class size doesn't make a difference when you're saying the things that the, the really big effects are things like feedback and medical, you know, how can we give feedback when we've got uh, so many kids in the class, surely we can give better feedback if we've got uh, fewer kids, smaller class. And some of that's right, I think, except that it also slightly misunderstands what the research is saying, which is that introducing a feedback intervention, in other words, a, a systematic attempt to enhance the kinds of feedback that are given 
that has a big impact, you know, regardless of the size of the class, that, that has a big impact. So it's not saying that feedback's a good thing to give. It's saying these are interventions that you can make that, that do make a difference. Anyway, that's a maybe a subtle point. So these debates would then happen. And I suppose as you have more and more of them, they become quite familiar where, where, where they go. And one of the things that occurred to me through having lots of these arguments with teachers I mean, well, you know, good-natured arguments and constructive yeah. arguments, I hope. I, I probably did upset some people, but I, I hopefully um, others found it, found it constructive and useful. But anyway, it became clear to me that really we weren't actually talking about learning. Mm. We were talking about things like keeping kids occupied uh, and making sure they're doing the work that's been assigned to them and, and keeping them interested and um, making sure they can give us the answers that we're looking for and things like that. And I suppose I thought, well, maybe that's part of the problem here, that we're slightly talking at cross purposes. We think we're talking about learning. And actually, we're not talking about learning. We're talking about these other things. And that's where I suppose the idea of the, the poor proxies came from, that they're, they're, they're not really trustworthy indicators that learning is happening which is, you know, very tricky because what, what is a, a trustworthy indicator? So maybe I'm contradicting myself a bit there because to make that argument, we need to agree what we mean by learning. Mm. And I've just, well, don't bother, we, don't bother me with definitions, you know, that's, <laughs> we all know what we mean, but maybe we don't actually accept mm. that. You know, what I did say, I think, is that the evidence of learning is in what children can do. So you can't see learning by watching them uh, you know, whether their eyes light up as they do things and whether they, um, well, I mean, I mean, whether they fill a page of writing, I suppose, is evidence that they can do something. So in some way, that's, that's a, a better guide to whether there's been some learning, but it depends a lot on what what's on that page of writing yeah I guess for me that's why the definition was quite an interesting thing to explore because when you talked about sort of 2010 2011 I was just getting going as a teacher around that time yeah. so these poor proxies for learning you know I absolutely would have sat in one of your <laughs> talks and thought who is he to be <laughs> suggesting that these because I was being told these were great you know indicators of, of learning happening you know that and Steve was exactly the same similar time mm. we started our career as teachers so we were being told these things were great we were being judged on these we were being told we were good or outstanding if we were doing these yeah. things when now through the lens of understanding cognitive science and that and that learning for me definitely is about something to do with long-term memory I, I realized that yeah. that doesn't sound very romantic and uh, <laughs> you know learning for me is an incredibly deep almost almost spiritual to use that word in terms of its beauty um, yeah. but 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 the the sort of scientific part of me knows that it's about a shift in long-term memory in some respect I do look at your proxies in a very, very different way to how I would have in 2010. I mean, they they make real sense to me now that I understand that learning is about actually remembering things mm -hmm. in, in, in the long term. But, you know, does that feel the same for you, Steve? These were things we were told. And, and just to, for our audience, if you haven't seen this slide, uh, Rob's mentioned some of them, students being busy, students engaged, um, motivated, uh, getting attention, an ordered classroom, uh, you know, some correct answers, all these kinds of things. Yeah. And uh, do you know what, before we came onto the podcast, we were talking about these slides. And I said to you, Russell, that actually in the early days, my NQT year, which is around 2011, going into 2012, what 
<laughs> what was seen as the outstanding criteria on a judged observation were these these buzzwords. Of, yeah. It just feels so superficial in terms of what you're looking at from afar <laughs> compared to what learning was really happening in the room. And Russell, you will know my first class. They were a delight, weren't they? And they were yeah. there was hands up class and they were all engaged engaged um to that degree but yeah you know what you can understand why now looking back like you said through a different lens as to why they are poor proxies for learning and they're not justification of what's actually happening in that classroom yeah come back to you there rob well what are you hearing from what we're saying there yeah well that's really interesting i mean i i think it's a i've written um somewhere about how being able to say I've changed my mind about this is is a, a kind of marker of, of following the evidence mm. or perhaps put it the other way around if you if you can't say here's something that I believe passionately that I no longer believe yeah. then I think it's very hard to I, I, I'm unlikely to be convinced that you're really interested in evidence because Evidence is quite often surprising, and it, and if we're not willing to let go of, of things that we believe strongly and passionately, then we're probably not really open to it. Yeah. Uh, it's very unlikely, I think, that it all it does is just confirm our prejudices. So uh, you, you give me some uh, good examples of that. But I I think just to clarify, I, I was I don't think I was ever saying, and I'm not saying now that these are bad things to see in a classroom. Mm. You know, if it's a choice between children who are working quietly and, and sort of chaos all over the place, yeah, give me children working quietly. If it's a choice between uh, enthusiasm and engagement and, and complete disinterest and boredom and uh, nobody being at all bothered, well, give me enthusiasm and engagement, yes. But the key thing is not to mistake that for learning, not to think because we've got this, we must have learning. These are all good things to have, but they're good things that you could perfectly easily have and have no learning happening at all. Mm. And that, um, I think that opens up all sorts of problematic thinking about, well, how do we know then? How do we know if there's any learning happening? Uh, which is a good, a good challenge that would quite often come back to me mm. if I said, well, you know, these are all poor proxies. And people would say, well, you know, tell us your good proxy. And the one I came up with, so this was put forward really in a in my what was my uh, inaugural lecture, professorial inaugural lecture at Durham. And that was in 2013 when I uh, first talked about these poor proxies in writing anyway. And I suggested that actually what we should focus on is what's what's going on in their heads and whether they're thinking hard. So a, a better proxy or something like that, I think I said, was, you know, how, how many children for how much time are thinking how hard about the stuff that you want them to think about? So not what colour to put at the top of their poster, you know, but actually the, the information that you want them to learn or the ideas you want them to understand or the process you want them to be able to do procedures or, or whatever it is, you know, being really, really clear about that and uh, focusing on that because, Thinking hard is, is one of those sort of, it, it's a kind of um, desirable difficulty type thing from Bjork. You know, it's it's not something any of us really enjoy doing, I think, or, or very few human beings would readily choose to do it. And yet it's quite necessary for, you know, we, we put, we give children these hard ideas to get their heads around, you know, things like column subtraction or ideas about um, causality in history or, you know, how does one thing lead to another or, how do we understand um, historical processes? Those kind of thing. I mean, this is just incredibly difficult ideas. Mm -hmm. 
I actually think there's there's a bit more to this than just thinking hard, because what I now know, I don't think I I really knew at all about cognitive load theory then. But what I think one of the implications of that, I think, again, I'm not really an expert on it, but is that you can think too hard. You know, you can overload people basically with with too much. So there is a sweet spot about the right amount of hardness. But I do think as a heuristic for planning a lesson, if you're thinking about who's thinking hard at, at this point and what are they thinking about, hmm. that I think can be quite a useful way of thinking, well, because the, the sort of obvious way and the way I think I was taught and, and, and generally always did probably is much more to think about activities. Well, what are we going to do next? You know, let's mm. do this because this is fun. Mm. Kids love it. And actually what we should start with, with is what, what do we want them to learn? What do we want them to understand or be able to do? And, and from that, what do we need them to think about? And then how do we get them to think about those things? That's when you start thinking about the activity. Mm. So I think think it's quite hard to justify in a really scientific way. And I've I've never tried to do that. I've said in in relation to the um, thinking hard is uh, a good proxy. You know, if it's helpful, it's helpful. Fine. If it isn't, it isn't. Sorry to interject. I think it's really helpful. And I think that's where the expertise and experience of teachers is really valuable because, you know, actually it just switches that conversation because I remember some of your ideas being shared or some of the points around proxies for learning being shared on um, Andrew Percival and Claire Seeley's conference about curriculum. And and they talked about curriculum for long-term learning. So these ideas were floating around there. And I remember going back to my school and having this conversation with my colleagues and saying, so if learning's got something a bit more to do with shifts in long-term memory, if it's a if it's not just about performance, if it is a bit more to do with thinking hard, what are some of the other indicators that you would see in your class and that maybe that's happening? Maybe, you know, you're still talking tentatively, but it shifted that conversation from activity and performance to, well you know, a child to be like to really be able to articulate their thoughts about something clearly is a bit of a sign they've probably started to think quite deeply if they're using that technical vocabulary associated with a subject if they and then suddenly you're shifting the conversation to potentially more reliable indicator I still say potentially because we can never be sure what schemas are being formed but um, it's, it's a healthier conversation I don't almost feel like we have to have all the answers because I don't know that we can really. It's too complicated. No, we can't. And and it's imperfect, whatever we do. Mm-hmm. And I think the best answer I have to, well, how do we know whether learning is happening or not, is assessment. You know, that mm-hmm. that's basically what assessment does. So that requires us then to really have a good understanding about what, what assessment can do, how to make assessment good, what the limits of assessment are. I think of it as a like a kind of communication. You know, we're talking... And, and we may be talking, having the same ideas in our heads and the people who are listening to us, if anyone is, may also have very similar ideas in their heads, but they may not actually. They may hear the words that we say and, and think they hear something quite different from what, you know, let's say I'm, I'm, I think I'm trying to say, uh, but that's the nature of communication. It, it is quite imperfect and, you know, good communicators are able to overcome that because they, they listen carefully and they articulate carefully and they check mm. to make sure that what they think they've heard is what the person meant to say and so on. Mm. Um, and that's really the same with good assessment, I think, that we have to we design it carefully. Mm. We think really hard about how to elicit what's in people's heads, learners' heads, 
and um, then we check to make sure that actually that is right. You know, they they may have given us a really good explanation, but perhaps they they just you know parroted, memorized uh, the words, and they didn't really understand them. So we, you know, the skillful teacher comes back with a with a well, what what about if it wasn't like that? If it was like this, what what would you think then? And the child who really does understand it, it can answer that well, and the child who doesn't so much. Uh, is a bit thrown by that, mm. so that's a useful, uh, useful check and a useful, and all of that I would call assessment. I mean, it's quite sort of formative in the moment assessment. It's not yep. sat in an exam room, you know, writing a exam paper, but it it's assessment, isn't it? Because it's about trying to get insights into the kind of thinking that's going on in in learners' heads. That that's really what assessment is. When we started to think slightly differently about proxies for learning, got us thinking about timescales a bit different with the learning process. That, that what Steve was describing by the outstanding lesson was all in that one hour nugget, wasn't it? And performance in that time. Where yeah, for you, definitely. Steve, uh, I, I'm sure it's the same as it is for me now. I'm much more interested in can they remember anything about what I've taught them three weeks down the line or a month down the line? Has anything stuck and, and, and sort of sunk in in some sort of deep way? Is that the case for you, Steve? It's changed your idea of kind of time scales of learning. It's not all in that one hour bracket. 100% it has. Yeah, we, we're no longer looking at individualised lessons. We are looking at a chronology of learning. As such. We're looking at how we can use previous knowledge and previous learning to help us with what we're doing today and what we could do next week. And that is the whole schema of putting interweaving everything that we're doing there. So, yeah, I completely agree. It's far-fetched to imagine that in one hour you can encapsulate what has been learned and that it's beneficial to everyone in that one hour. 30 children and now it's very hard to assess, isn't it? Yeah, and all the brilliant stuff we've learned. I mean, you talked about a lot of this research having been around for a long time, Rob. Ebbinghaus, you know, yes. <laughs> you, you pull up Ebbinghaus and, and uh, I always sort of, if I'm doing any training with colleagues, I expect someone to scoff at the point you put dates on with a slide about Ebbinghaus because these ideas about forgetting and memory have been around for a very, very long time. And as you say, it's only really fully coming into the world of teaching now, I think, the last few years. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 great to see that it is, I think. Mm. And I think the um, there is a real volume and uh, depth of understanding around some of these things, you know, and, and people like yourselves doing podcasts and writing books and interacting on, on Twitter and through things like Research Ed or other conferences and that, those kinds of things. I mean, I don't think that kind of thing was happening before, certainly not on the kind of scale and in the way it is now. And uh, it seems so much better informed and it's just frightening how some teachers know so much about some of this evidence, this research and, you know, Ebbinghaus and, and what have you. And I just think that's a wonderful thing for the whole system that not everyone has that, I know. Uh, not every kind of training route into teaching necessarily is very strong on that also, but there, there's definitely a, a really positive swell of people I think who've got these ideas and and I think it's the level of debate that people have this seems really important that those kinds of discussions about well what is memory and and what is learning and you know how do we get kids to remember stuff Mm. I feel quite ashamed to admit really that I I was just forever uh, perennially baffled by the fact that students forgot stuff (laughs) come on you could do this yesterday what how, how come you can't do it today? It just seems so obvious to me and so permanent in my head, this knowledge, that the idea that they could kind of have it one moment and then 
not have it even just the next day or even you know, half an hour later, yeah. let alone a week later or something like that. And I, I don't think it ever occurred to me that it was down to me to, to work within that, that those constraints and do something about it. It was just like, oh, for goodness sake. Yeah. You know? <laughs> also, I, I always thought of myself as a good performer in the classroom in that not just in, I don't mean in an entertaining way like I genuinely felt I knew my subject knowledge and I could explain it well so if it hadn't landed I just didn't get it or, or, or I certainly didn't understand why it hadn't stuck even if it had you know it seemed to have landed in that lesson but once you come to understand things like the forgetting curve what a simple principle but you work with it don't you and you go this is this is okay this is mm-hmm. part of how the human brain works yeah and the complexity, so I, I'm constantly drawn back to Graham Nuttall and his work, just the kind of complexity of how how perverse learning is, mm. you know, that the children don't learn what we teach them and they don't learn what we intend them to learn necessarily, although some of them may do, but not, not always in the way that we expect them to or we think they have as well. Our, our perception of that whole process as a teacher is just so distorted by... The, the processes of, of what they show us and what they don't show us and, you know, the kind of rules of the game. And I think it's it all of that's very sobering mm. that this is just not a simple linear process that you, yeah, I've explained this well, so why haven't you understood it mm. kind of thing. that That's just not how it works at all. It doesn't, it, we shouldn't expect that actually. No, and I think it will be very refreshing for people listening to hear from you that none of this is very simple and none of this is definite and concrete. I think people will be pleased to hear that from you, given how your slides are sometimes presented online as very black and white. You've given us the nuance to that today, which has been really lovely, Rob. As a final point, I was just curious, you know, we are five years down the line from when that slide first appeared or six years. Yeah. yeah. Oh gosh, seven years. (laughs) Where's your thinking now? What has moved on in in your understanding of of just this particular debate? You've shared some insights around cognitive science there. Well, um, um, some of, I think my thinking today is basically the same as it was. Some of it's moved on. So I think one of the things that has become clear to me, so the, the What Makes Great Teaching report then it kind of came out of this. It was those discussions about pedagogy and classroom practice and how we help students to learn stuff. Again, just thought, well, actually, there is quite a bit of research here. Not all of it is that well known. And so let's do a review of that. And then in about 2019, so that was 2015, 14 so about five years after that I started to think right well that that needs a bit of updating because it's five years old and and you know there's new research there's research that I didn't know about then that isn't new as well but also there has been new stuff and it's always after five years I think it's okay to come back and do a refresh on something like that and I suppose in the process of doing that I started to think yes we can we can uh, summarize some of that evidence about practice, good practice, if you like, what, what's effective pedagogy, what makes great teaching type of idea. But it's not enough just to produce um, another report or, or try and put this into words, basically. Words don't do it. Um, so we, we did a report. So this is the, the Great Teaching Toolkit Evidence Review that was published in 2020, which is basically an update, I, I guess you can say, to what makes great teaching. There's a There's a framework there, which is hopefully helpful some people have said it's helpful to say uh, as a kind of list of things that that matter and by implication things that are not on the list therefore 
probably don't matter and aren't worth spending time trying to do. But that that wider project, um, you know, the reason we called it a toolkit when there already were lots of other toolkits well known is because it, it you know, it is a set of tools. Uh, the first part of which is this um, summary, which hopefully is authoritative and also accessible about what the evidence says about effective teaching practices. But we know that teachers need more than that to change their practice. You don't improve your practice just by reading about it. You know, if I want to be a, a virtuoso violinist, I can't just read books about it. Or if I want to be a, a golfer or something like that, I, I can't just read books about it. I can't just watch other people do it. I need to do it myself and I need to be coached how to do it and get good feedback and spend a lot of time practicing and all those things. So that's the same with teaching, I think. And so can we create some tools that help people to do that, that give them insights into their own practice? So that's been one of the things to give th things like student surveys uh, we've created where you can ask the children to tell you what they think about what's going on in your classroom. Pretty much everyone who's done those, I think, and, and you know, there's about 700 teachers have done them now, which is marvellous. They've learned something useful, something surprising that's given them insight into their own classroom and that I think is potentially a, a part of a process that helps people to change and thinking about how can we support collaboration so teachers working together again collaboration on its own is not enough it's not you know just to be in a group of teachers talking about your practice is a bit like putting a group of children who don't know how to do some complex procedure and saying well off you go and work it out you know it's not a very efficient way to mm. help them to do it it's, it's more effective to teach them how to do it in general uh, and the same is true for adult learners and teachers but that social environment and the work environment and the collaboration um, is really important and we need to harness that uh, but if we can also inject into it some of that expertise as well and some of those some of those insights then the hope is that that's a uh, a kind of scalable model for helping teachers to become even better than they are. And so that's basically uh, where we're at. So it builds on that whole idea about uh, research evidence and effective classroom practice, but it, it's more, I, I guess, more kind of practically oriented to try and solve this really thorny problem about how how you actually help people to change their practice when they want to. You know, it's a different challenge to... Uh, get people to want to who don't want to but I think most teachers do want to actually certainly many teachers do they want to be better it's just really really hard to actually be better mm. not just to think you're better but to genuinely be better yeah uh, particularly amidst the pandemic with all the other strains that teachers have been facing. yes well that's a whole another set of challenges definitely yeah yeah I mean, that, that whole thing's been horrendous hasn't it it's been very challenging and i think the profession's done an amazing job and you know we've got four cts in my school this year who are just superbly reflective and open-minded so i think there's a lot of a lot of hope for the profession going forward yeah rob it's been a, a delight talking to you this evening thank you for giving us some of your time and your insights and as i said earlier very nuanced responses that are much appreciated thank you thank you yeah no keep up the good work it's great thank you so much the dynamic deputy